hi there, just popping in at the top to warn you that this podcast episode may include some language that's inappropriate for young ears. And as always, there will be spoilers ahead. Now enjoy the show. Hey there, welcome to Tear Jerkers, the podcast where we rate movies on a teardrop scale. Because sometimes you just need a good cry, and we're here to tell you where to find it. I'm actor, writer, and lifelong Eponine stan, Maybelle Shimizu. And I'm Kimia, a person who can take several hours to watch one 40-minute TV show and who once paused a movie when it was playing the Universal Studios animation and didn't ever finish the film. Also, Eponine is the only babe in this whole movie. So I take the sitting through Les Mis, which is like famously a slog of a musical, was a little difficult for you? I love you very much. And my brain may be a smooth marble rolling around in my head, but I trapped it under a tiny basket like in the mousetrap game for you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Well, today we're going to be discussing misery, love at first sight, singing live in a movie, and having absolutely no concept of a gray zone. It's Les Miserables. And then we're going to finish with tissue tunes. But before that, let's get into personal histories. Mine is short. I saw it in the theater and that's it. Maybell? So um, as with pretty much every movie musical, I'm always going to give you my personal history, both with the film version and with the musical as a show. Um, as you should. Uh, yes. So um, first of all, I saw Les Mis as a musical when I was in high school. I went to London for a school trip and we watched a production on the West End where Samantha Barks, who plays Eponine in the movie, was playing Eponine in the West End. Oh. Yeah. So um, so she was the first Eponine I saw and she's phenomenal. Um, and then the... The movie came out in 2012, so I was in college, and uh, I actually distinctly remember that the first time I watched the movie in theaters, I didn't cry because I had just spent the previous night staying up until like two or three in the morning crying over Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Because, because when I was 18, I decided now is the time for me to binge watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and it was on Netflix, so that's what I did. Um, okay. And I just gotten to the episode in like season five or something when uh, Buffy's mom dies. And it's mm. like absolutely sudden and very tragic. And I like wept through the night to that episode. So the next day when I went to see Les Mis, I was kind of like dried up from mm. having already like been very emotional the night before. So <laughs> that was um, my history with the the movie of the musical. And then I actually also saw the musical again in a professional production. I went back to the West End when I was in London for my semester abroad and I saw it again there. Um, and I loved it again. I'm pretty sure I cried both times I've seen it live. Um, but I didn't cry when I saw it in the movie theater. So I was interested Mm -hmm. to see what the results would be watching the movie at home. I wish I had seen it in the theater like I mean as a play in the theater you should I think you definitely should sometime yeah I I definitely would yeah once once live theater happens again um yeah if if there's a production of it coming through town I definitely think you should check it out because it is different 
Um, okay. I will tell you, it is different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, your French I- exists and mine yeah. doesn't. Would you mind reading the synopsis? Okay, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> Le Miserable was first a novel written by Victor Hugo, published in 1862. And it's been adapted several times, actually, not just into this um, musical But most notably, it was turned into the 1985 musical and then this 2012 film. It's set after the first French Revolution in which they behead King Louis and Marie Antoinette. And I think the first portion of it takes place about 23 or 25 years after the first French Revolution. And the French monarchy has been restored And so there's a king again, and the people are not very happy about it. And that's the undercurrent of revolution throughout the film. Um, So the primary storyline actually follows Jean Valjean, who is a prisoner um, who was enslaved for 15 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And he gets out on parole, and he breaks his parole because life of an ex-convict is pretty much miserable and untenable. Um, People beat him and they throw him out and they won't give him anything to live off of. So he has to break his parole. And because of that, he's pursued by Javert, the prison guard and also a police inspector. He's like the ultimate cop, like very cop. That's what Javert is. And then um, you also see stories of Fantine, who is at first a seamstress working in Jean Valjean's factory after he escapes the law and is able to make a life for himself but she ends up having to um, sell her body like literal parts of her body her hair her teeth as well as sex in order to support her daughter Cosette who nine years later after she's been adopted by Jean Valjean who takes her on as a responsibility after he realizes he's the reason why Fantine is in such a miserable condition Um, Cassette grows up and she falls in love with the revolutionary Marius, who is um, participating in a plot to revolt against the new French monarchy, which I think is supposed to be like Napoleon or something like that. But it's not really clear. They don't mention the king specifically. They just say that there is a king again. Anyway, um, that is probably the longest synopsis we've ever given. But this is also a really long movie. So I think it's fair. (laughs) It has a lot going on. It's hard to explain. Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially because it has sentence. two different time jumps. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time jump happens after Jean Valjean breaks his parole. And then it's eight years later and he's the mayor of this small town and he's put this town on the map. Um, so Javert, the cop, gets sent to this new town and is like is like helping um, who he does not realize is Jean Valjean to like bring law and order to this town that is now suddenly important and worthy. Um, And then the second time jump is later when Cosette grows up. Um, But yeah, so that's, that's going to be what we're discussing today in Les Mis. And I'm probably only going to call it Les Mis from now on. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. Um, Sorry, French people and language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this, yeah, especially this should issue quite the apology to the French language. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll talk about that. We will talk about that. We will. But before we do all that, we should take a break. Let's take a break. This episode of Tear Jerkers is brought to you by the adoptive dad that is also a superhero trope. 
The Mandalorian, The Witcher, Batman, and Jean Valjean all count in these ranks. And of course, the question we must ask is, who would you do? Oh, I mean, <laughs> oof. I mean, when I, I was- I probably do all of them. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I had a huge crush on Hugh Jackman. Like, uh -huh. massive crush on Hugh Jackman in, during the, like, Wolverine days when I was, like, what, all of 12 years old or something. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, even though Jean Valjean is, like, probably not the sexiest DILF in, in the people that we've ranked, like, mm -hmm. I still love Hugh Jackman. And then, um, I mean, yeah, they're all, they're all hot. Like, they're all hot yeah. dads. They really are. They're all we good. <laughs> yeah, um, I was really happy with the casting for Hugh Jackman in this. I feel like he's a very good, um, he's a good choice among the screen actors that could have been considered. Like he's known mm -hmm. for being super strong, which is like a very important part of Jean Valjean's character is that he can mm -hmm. like pull off feats of inhuman strength. strength. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I couldn't help but realize the the mimetic parallels between the Mandalorian and how Jean Valjean adopts Cassette and is like, you're, you're my daughter and I finally know joy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Who, who's your favorite dad? Um, of these four, I would definitely do the Mandalorian and the Witcher. Mm -hmm. um, I would mm -hmm. have to talk a lot to Batman and be like, hey, maybe you should it change also, the way you're doing things. Yeah, it also, like, I don't think that any of the live-action Batmans are DILFs, you know? Like... Oh, I'm kind of thinking, like, like the character... Yeah, maybe the character, um, like, the comic book like, idea of him, maybe some of the versions of him in, in like, um, Justice League. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking them, thinking of these people well i guess the mandalorian and the witcher i'm thinking of like those specific ones but mm -hmm. batman and john valjean like i'm kind of thinking about the concept mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. than like any particular face i see i see that makes sense because also batman and john valjean have been played by many men whereas yeah. like the mandalorian and the witcher have pretty much only been played by the two actors that play them yeah yeah that's fair <laughs> We have to talk about who we would do because no one in the actual film is like really all that attractive, oh, in my well, opinion. Yes, that's yes, that's also because um, I mean I was gonna get into this in the discussion portion, but I'll just briefly touch on it here. Um, Les Mis is not a show for close-ups. Like, explain. They do a very good job of showing the like gritty, miserable, like all the like gunky dirtiness of this mm -hmm. like story. Um, and when you're seeing it live and everyone is like 50 feet away from you, it doesn't have the same like repelling effect that having like a close up shot on all of these actors who are like in these physically miserable conditions made up to look kind of gross. Like, the, mm -hmm. the close-up shots are, like, not something that you really get in live theater. Um, mm -hmm. And, like, I was going to talk about this later, but I'll, I'll just say it now. Um, mm -hmm. The scene in the sewers is so oh my God. disgusting in the movie. Because you actually see shit and poop and, like, all of the disgusting, like, Paris gutters and all the sewers that the characters are in. And it's so gross because they have to make it look real. Whereas on stage, there's no gunk. 
there's like mm -hmm. an archway and different lighting and like you know it's just not as dirty it's yeah you like use your imagination yeah exactly it's like not as viscerally disgusting to look at yeah there's also like it's not sexy because it's not sexy there's yeah, no it's like, not sexy, sexy like concepts even like no Fontaine is like pretty before she mm -hmm. has her downfall and that's yeah. you know that's, that's it. it yeah no one is like hot no one is like yeah and the yeah, romance there's like no sex appeal the central romance of this film is completely devoid of any sort of sex or sexiness yeah like it is a completely asexual love at first sight type of romance yeah. like yeah yeah not enough bodice ripping in this Now I want, I don't want to actually read it, but I want to like, I want to see the fan fiction. The yes. Bodice ripping lamest <laughs> fan fiction. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's out there. Show I'm me the porn parody of this movie. Someone send it to us, please, at tearjerkers <laughs> underscore podcast on Twitter. Um, All right. I think that's enough of a break. I think we should get back to the show. Let's get back to it. All right, so it's time to hit up the movie discussion portion of this podcast. Um, so like I said earlier, I have a lot of background with Les Mis being a musical theater kid and having seen the show as well as the movie several times. So um, yeah, I, I kind of knew what to expect when I was going to see it. I wasn't really sure. I couldn't remember the differences between the movie and the stage adaptation. So there were some surprises still. But yeah, I... I mean, I watched it last night and it was after I'd spent about like three hours hyper-focusing on crafts and neglecting to eat. So I was super sad because I was hungry. Oh. Um, you know, yeah, it's like hangry, but depressed. So I, I was just like really down because I was hungry, but I started eating as I started the movie. So okay. like I, by the time the opening number had like really unfurled, I was like back I was feeling fine. My blood sugar was back up. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how I got to start the movie yesterday. Okay. I, I just watched it on Saturday. It was, like, kind of the only day I knew I would have time to mm -hmm. watch the whole thing. That's fair. Um, and I, like I said, I had seen it before. I knew, um, I wasn't, like, excited to watch it. <laughs> Um, but I was well fed and then I did get my like pretzels and cookie butter to snack on. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You pull, need snacks through to get the through end. this movie. Yes. It's long. You... I wish that they had like a dedicated, um, intermission. Me too. Oh, point because that... it really could use it. That was what really confused me. Cause like I was waiting for, um, for the intermission number, but it kind of confused me because they didn't quite do it like the way that I expected it to, like the way I know it for the show. Like they put Eponine's number before it, it when usually Eponine's like big song um, on my own is in the second act. And mm. for some reason it was before the song that's supposed to be the act break. So mm. yeah, I just, sorry, the song is One Day More. It was bugging me. So I had to look it up. Um, mm. Yeah, before One Day More. And so like when One Day More happened, there was only like, 35 to 40 minutes left in the movie and I was like what like yeah yeah it was weird uh, yeah I understand I wish that they would just like do it the way it was written and give us an intermission 
No more two-hour movies with no intermission. We, we don't want them. We don't. We don't want to watch them. We don't. Honestly, like, I am tired of movies that are over two hours long. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't want it. I, I don't want it anymore. I can't even get myself to watch more than two hours of, like, a, a TV show. Like, a movie, mm. a movie is rough. <laughs> yeah, it's too you much. Know? Yeah, but, um... I definitely, I definitely feel, I feel you. Cause I was thinking about, um, trying to schedule this movie into my week and we actually had to push recording back a day because I didn't have enough time to watch the movie before our regular mm-hmm. recording day. So I was like, can we push it back? Cause yeah, I couldn't watch it over the weekend. I had to wait until Monday. Yeah. yeah. She's lengthy. Oh, she is. But she's shorter than the stage play. <laughs> But, Great. but like, it's just totally different, you know, like adapting yeah. something from the stage, like it's just so much more encompassing and like, it just sucks you in so much better. And I did mm. take a few notes about like the audio. Um, Cause there's the fact that this was like setting a whole new precedent for live sung musical movies, which had never happened before. It was like a really big deal that that like the track for the movie was actually recorded where the mo- where the video was recorded uh, rather than like those standard practice before, which had been to record in a studio a couple months before you start shooting and then just like lip sync along to the track. Mm-hmm. Also, there's like a fantastic video essay that I watched over the weekend about like autotune and how it impacted like this like movie musical trend and how we seem to understand autotune and like recording for music movie musicals. So if you're interested in that, I will drop a link in the show notes. If you're interested in any sort of like musical theory uh, criticism, there's like great YouTube video essayists out there for it. Um, I'm kind of intrigued. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely send it to you. Um, okay. Yeah, I just like cannot help but miss the really visceral feeling of being in a room with an ensemble of actors that are singing at the top of their lungs. Like it just doesn't hit you the same way, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about the singing in this movie. But oh yeah. I think let's let's do it. Let's get into it. Right, right away. Okay. Um, I don't have like a critic's ear mm-hmm. but I think I, this annoyed me in Rent too mm-hmm. they would like someone sings their song and then the next person sings three words mm-hmm. and then the first person sings four words and then the next person sings three words and it's like very annoying mm-hmm. also it seemed like a lot of the female characters had like kind of one note that they sang yeah and not a lot of range and it was so boring mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. should all of these actors really be singing? I mean, some of them are, are singers. Like Hugh Jackman has a background in musical theater. He can sing. Um, Russell mm-hmm. Crowe, on the other hand, was so bad that I had a hard time watching him anytime he was on screen. So yeah. Also like all of my favorite one, all of my favorite actors in this are the people who like started on stage like mm-hmm. Aaron Tivet, who plays Angel Ross, he's like phenomenal, great singer. I have to, I have to look that up because I can't remember who you're talking about. He's the blonde, curly-haired man who's like all revolution and no blonde. Yeah, he he's the guy who you look at and you think he's gonna be the romantic lead, but he's not. He's like kind of cute. Yeah, he. How was, do you spell his character's name? E N J O L R A S. 
Okay. Um, oh, he is blonde. Okay. Yeah. He's like a big time Broadway heartthrob. He's playing, um, or he was recently playing Christian in the adaptation of Moulin Rouge on Broadway, which funny enough is the opposite. It is a movie musical that has been turned into a Broadway play as opposed to a Broadway musical that has been turned into a movie musical. Anyway, just fun I still stuff. need to watch that one. Oh, Moulin Rouge is such a trip. It's so much fun. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's directed by Boz Lerman, which is pretty much all you need to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm ready for that. But yeah, like, um, I don't know. I, I felt like Russell Crowe really, like, detracts as the singer in, the sh- in this movie. Like, all of the other ones, I've seen them in other movie musicals. So even if they're not, like, necessarily stage-trained actors, like, I can accept it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, um, Sasha Baron Cohen, Cohen? Sasha Baron Cohen in um in this as well as in Sweeney Todd, he's fine. He's great. Also, his roles are not like heavy on the singing, you know? Like yeah. he's not supposed to be the most beautiful singer. He's supposed to be the most comedic. Um Yes. Yeah. So he kind of, you know, gets off a little easy on that, but also he does a good job. So yeah. Um Amanda Seyfried, I like her. I wish that she could have had a little bit more support in her breath. I mean, part of it is also Cosette's role is literally written like that. Like, I don't blame Amanda Seyfried at all. That is how Cosette is written. What's her name again? Cosette. <laughs> it seemed like in in the movie, several of the characters said they called her Cassette. Cassette. Like Cassette <laughs> tape. <laughs> like, that's not her name. I'm I don't speak French, but I'm pretty sure they don't say it. Cosette. Cosette. Yeah, Cassette. Cassette. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Cassette is also like the most frequently shat on character. Like, be, and I why? Think, I think it's because she is pretty much entirely shielded from the misery of the rest of the show. Like, right. the entire world around her is this crumbling, sad mess. And she is in this like beautiful, gilded cage, like protected by Jean Valjean and his like wealth. And his ability to protect her. So I think so. I think some people are just haters. And also like, yeah, she, she is kind of this like blissfully unaware young girl among a backdrop of like suffering and misery and sadness. So I think that's why. Also, like, it's so easy to make fun of the whole love at first sight trope, right? Like, yeah, I I guess. I mean, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it now that I'm no longer in high school and I'm over my pick me phase. Like, right. You know, but like when I was in high school, yeah, everyone shot on cassette. Like that's like the character to hate on. Like she's pretty and she has no problem. So you have to hate her. Okay. It's hashtag feminism. Okay, gotcha. All right. Like, she does have a very rough childhood, and if this was real life, she would have, like, trauma, That's et cetera. True. Oh, for sure. But it, it's not. Yeah. I mean, much of it is worse than real life, but... Yes. Well, that's not true. I shouldn't say that. It's dismal. It is quite dismal. I'm trying to come up with other synonyms for sad and miserable, but I am going to be saying miserable a lot, because it's just going to be at the front of my mind. <laughs> it's miserable. It's a miserable film with miserable mm-hmm. people. Um, and then, like, on the topic of some of the issues with adapting an operetta, like, 
because they would cut back on the backing tracks and like the instrumental support, some of the scenes where the people are just like talking, singing back and forth a conversation sounded like they were just picking random melodies or random notes yeah. that weren't melodically connected because they weren't actually supported by any orchestration or anything. So yeah, I didn't love that. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of an issue with the whole operetta uh, thing. If you're going to make a movie operetta, you have to have the music throughout. Yeah. I didn't love the that whole situation either. Yeah. I had a feeling that you probably felt it was weird because it didn't sound great. Yeah. yeah. And I don't have like the musical background or the musical theater background to like even know what all that means and how it should be done and how it's usually done. But like mm-hmm. it just didn't like this. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally To the amateur fair. ear, it didn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, I could talk all day, uh, all day, really, about at adapting stage musicals to movies. Um, but this is a podcast about crying and sadness and having um, emotional reactions to movies. So... Um, <laughs> My primary emotion was why. Okay, let's go on. <laughs> Did you cry, Mabel? Oh my gosh, yes. The primary emotion Tell was me. why. Tell uh, me about your thoughts and your feelings. Um, so I have a feeling that you probably didn't cry very much or tear up. But I do have some labels on just like the three peaks of emotion for me. So... For some reason, like, it started to get me actually earlier than I thought it would. Um, When the priest that, like, basically, like, saves Jean Valjean from the Mm -hmm. treachery of being an ex-convict, when the priest is, like, singing about how he saved Jean Valjean and saved his soul for God, that, Mm -hmm. that point, I don't know why, like, it did start to get me to well up a little bit. Um, And then it just kind of dissipated a little bit and it would come back and like ebb and flow a little bit. Um, when Fantine is dying and she says her last words, which are I'll see Cosette when I wake. And then she closes her eyes forever. Like that's fucking tragic. Yeah. The movies. Yeah. It is quite tragic throughout. Yeah. Did you cry? I didn't have any tears leave my eyes in this movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. This is a first. Um, I actually Okay, so we will we will just talk about the the emotional parts, not yeah. the crying parts. Yeah, because I actually did not have any tears escape, um, which is rare. I do wonder if it is because I'm like so in my head about movie musicals. But like I cried at rent, which I always I always cry at rent. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, this one, I don't know. I think I think like yeah, for me to cry, I have to see it live. I have to like feel, I have to feel my rib cage vibrating from the power of like 15 chorus members piling on top of each other vocally, you know? There's much more emotional connection when you see it live. I could not connect to any of these characters. Yeah. And a part of me also wonders how much like having this full, these like fully dressed sets, I can't tell if it helps or if it hinders the movie because on the stage production, like, the sets are a lot barer. There's a lot less, like, visual clutter or decoration or, like, visual stuff to tell you where people are because the play happens on a turntable. So, Which is, like, a large Lazy Susan. Yes, it's, like, a very, very large <laughs> Lazy Susan. That's exactly what it is. 
<laughs> okay. Um, and so because of that, um, you often see like very, very bare minimum sets. Like the mm-hmm. the convent where um, where Jean Valjean is saved and then goes back to die is literally just like a few chairs and a table and a cross and the candlesticks on the table. Like, mm-hmm. like it's just very bare. So I think it kind of causes you to have to connect really specifically to the actors and Mm -hmm. hone in on them but you're also at a distance so you're not seeing like close-ups of their face which are like caked in mud and like kind of disgusting stuff in the lamest movie which is kind of off-putting not gonna lie and also I I also just want to say like I do wonder if some of the acting choices get limited when you can only act from like the chest up in a movie musical. Mm. Whereas like on mm-hmm. stage, you can act with your entire body. It gives you way more options for what to do with your lyrics. Cause sometimes there were moments where I felt like the direction was lacking just a little, but I couldn't tell if mm. it was really like that being close up on the actors was kind of hindering the performance because these are songs that are meant to be sung, you know, on a stage in front of thousands of people. So I don't know, you know. You know what I just realized while you were saying that is yeah. that there's so many period pieces, movies set in the past where the characters who are supposed to be dirty are perfectly manicured mm-hmm. and have like a smudge of dirt on their cheek. Mm-hmm. And just everyone is like that. Like they're gorgeous yeah. and beautiful and yeah have no body hair. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh and, like yes. they've their legs are shaven. You yes. Know? The the completely shaven underarms of women from like before the eighteen hundreds. Come on. Yeah. And they're all like just pristine except for like yeah. they have some dirt on their face and otherwise they're angelic. Yeah. So it it is, you know, now that I think of that, I do kind of appreciate that the they really they really do it with the grime. Mm. But then the they grime really includes, go all the way. Like, then the grime includes the sewers, which were disgusting. Yeah, the sewer scene is not pleasant to watch. Like, jeez. Um, like, whew. yeah, because on stage, they're not going to have sewer ick like that. It's just yeah, going to have some. That. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's just going to change the lighting a little bit and then put like a little arch set piece in the back. And like, the, that's the sewers. You, you're in the Parisian sewers now. Yeah. Um, no need for literal shit um, in your yeah. face. So. And they just go swimming. Ugh, ugh, ugh. It was so it's hard gross. to watch that scene. It was it was disgusting. So the other like heightened emotional moment for me, the last one that I didn't quite get to, is when Jean Valjean dies, which I think is a pretty predictable emotional moment, because um, mm-hmm. that's like the fin- the ending of the movie and the show. Um, I was a little confused by the by the um, by the thesis of this adaptation because they really just show everyone die and then they all sing a ghost ghost song, you know. They have um, do you hear the people sing? And they all sing it together as ghosts, which makes sense because everybody except for the Tenadiers and Marius and Cosette are like dead. So how mm-hmm. are you going to have a finale number if everybody is dead if they're not ghosts? So right. That's fair. But um, were there any key emotional moments for you? Any heights that you reached? I swear there was one part of the movie where I was more engaged than the rest, (laughs) but I can't remember what it was. Did did you take notes? 
Yeah, but not about that, apparently. <laughs> um, I wrote that I didn't get the Red and Black song. Why are they singing Red and Black multiple times? I don't know. <laughs> um, I wrote Javert needs to get a clue. Mm-hmm. I oh, wrote, God. oh, the part where uh, <laughs> Jean Valjean, he, like, realizes that Cosette has fallen in love with this kid. And he's like, well, I have to go meet him. Mm-hmm. And then he meets him. And then there's the part where, like, the young men are asleep. And Jean Valjean is just, like, yell singing right next to these poor sleeping men. <laughs> like, and, like, I know musicals, like, they're not literally singing. Mm-hmm. Like, in the story. Yeah. But it just was jarring. Like, let the man sleep. Go outside. Like, go yeah. yell sing in the street. Right. And then I wrote just, you know, mostly angry, angry things. Um, mm-hmm. I have another note about the accents. I know. Oof. Helena Bonham Carter is British. Sasha mm-hmm. Baron Cohen is British. Hugh Jackman is Australian. The fucking movie is set in France. Mm-hmm. Okay. These are all actors. Like, changing your accent is part of your job, mm-hmm. right? The movie is set in France. In, the movie is set in France. It's about French people. Why do they all have British fucking accents? Why do they I all do that? I think that's just, like, that is the custom that we've all agreed to, that, like, English-speaking historical drama set in France, people speak with British accents. I don't know why. But, like, that is, that is like, something that we've all agreed to. Because it happens, I feel like it happens in, like, everything that is about the French monarchy or the French Revolution that is in English. I hate it very much. That's fair. I... Thank you. I just hate it when it's, like, not consistent. When, like, some of the actors are American and some of the actors are British with their accents. Um, or, or if they flip-flop between having French accents and having British accents. Like, mm-hmm. you should either all have British accents or all have French accents. I would love to talk to whoever decided... Like, do you... I don't care if it's the standard. It's <laughs> important that it. they're in France. That act, that matters, you so know? So you think they should have if French was, accents? Yeah, if this was Beauty and the Beast, where it's set in France, but that literally does not matter, it could be set anywhere, I wouldn't mm-hmm. care. But it's about the French Revolution. It matters that they're French. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But it's not even about the French Revolution. It's about, like, a minor French Revolution decades after the first French Revolution. Okay, yeah, but it's, like, like it's important. It matters. It is. The like, setting the aesthetic is, important. is very French Revolution, even if it's not, yeah. like, the... 18th century French Revolution. So that was one thing that annoyed me, but by far my strongest emotional reaction mm-hmm. was when Javert kills himself. Mm. He jumps off the bridge into yes. the water. Mm-hmm. And I was so annoyed. The man has one crisis of conscience. I know. I know. And that's He's his so reaction. Weak. He's so he has That's what I was going to say. He How has weak no do you have understanding to be? of the concept of nuance. Yeah, he he doesn't, he just has never examined himself. Sure, lots nope. of people, like, go through life without examining themselves. And then you have this opportunity and you just say, no, thank you. I would not like to do that. Yep. He's just, he <laughs> does not know who he is if being a cop is not the right thing to do. You know? And he doesn't want to be anything else. Yeah, he's he a cop. That is his entire like, identity. Yeah, he doesn't want to be a good man. He doesn't want to, like, do a good thing. No, and after he, he realizes maybe he shouldn't be chasing this man. No, maybe he should have make a better choice in his life. Yeah, 
I think Javert should go back to kindergarten uh-huh. or perhaps preschool uh-huh. and talk to a nice kindergarten teacher who will tell him that he can make a different choice next time. Mm-hmm. I don't think that public education was really like on the forefront of people's minds in 1820 or 1840. I can't remember which decade the last part is set in, but no, you're right. Like Javert did not need to kill himself, but I'm also like not mad that he killed himself because I didn't like him, which is kind of awful, but like, he's a, he's a bad person. He's the villain. Like, yeah, he sucks. Yeah, he sucks. Um, and as soon as he is forced to confront the concept of any sort of like nuance or gray zone or middle ground or, or even like the law isn't correct. Yeah. Or like people are capable of change. Like, like even Mm -hmm. that very, very basic concept that people are capable of change, which I feel like is kind of an important tenet of Christianity, but whatever. Like, I'm not a theologian, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Christianity is all about how, you know, you are completely immutable. I doubt it, though. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, I was also surprised because, like, I was so unmoved by Javert's death. I realized watching it, I was like, usually suicides, especially like someone jumping off of a bridge into a body of water is like a trigger for me. Cause, Mm -hmm. cause like my friend killed himself that way when I was Mm -hmm. 19 and it was Mm -hmm. like a horrible, horrible thing that happened. And so usually that's a trigger for me and watching Javert do it. I had no emotional reaction. There's no, we don't have any emotional connection with the character. We don't see him as a whole person, mm-hmm. like we we don't. He could, yeah. He I just mean, doesn't. It doesn't help that every mm-hmm. time Russell Crowe was on screen, I wanted to look away. Like, yeah, I think Karina walked into the room mm-hmm. at that point in the movie and was like, "Well, at least we don't have to listen to Russell Crowe sing anymore." <laughs> oh, um, I love Karina. Yeah, Karina's great. Oh, but then Karina the room- stuck around for me yelling about the movie a lot. Oh, and I appreciated that. Good. I feel like the reverse is true for Anne Hathaway as Fantine because she is in and out with her Oscar win in like 30 minutes, you know? <laughs> good, and good for her. You know, and good, good for, for her. her. I mean, she comes back at the end as a ghost, as all right. people must in musicals for Curtain Call. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, like she does a phenomenal job in this role. She sings her number. She does a great job. And like... She's not a singer and she did a really good job, you know, and like she could have been a lot worse and still done and still be considered great because of the live aspect of the recording and the fact that the flaws in the performances are actually like kind of helping boost the emotional reality for these characters. Like, like if her voice cracked more often in I dreamed a dream, I wouldn't have had a problem with it because like Fantine is in this awful position. So like I wouldn't have minded a slightly less stellar vocal performance and she still delivered. She still Mm -hmm. gave us everything. I love it. She's in an impossible position. She like, has, she has no options. She has no freedom. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the last of, like, the serious things. Um, I did mm-hmm. want to pull a quote because this one really did, like, 
do a number on me. I really like this one. Um, at the very end, after Jean Valjean dies, and he and Fantine sings, to love another person is to see the face of God. That mm -hmm. was my favorite line. That was beautiful. Like, I really Yeah, that's that. a great line. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's one of those lines that, you know, theater kids get tattooed on themselves when they turn 18. Um, and then one last, like, emotional moment that didn't make me cry or tear up, but, like, I still had a reaction to was when Angelos cries when Eponine died. Like, they don't show these two characters really relating to each other very much. Like, they don't have any sort of interaction um, in the text. But seeing him be affected by her death was really moving in some ways. Um, especially after he tells Marius that, like, as, you know, people of the revolution, it isn't about their individual puny lives. He says something to the effect of, like, it isn't about our small lives. It's about the greater future for the people. Um, but to see that he could still mourn the loss of Eponine, especially I think because like she wasn't technically a soldier or like a revolutionary. She had, she was there to like watch out for Marius. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Oh wait, I totally forgot about little fall of rain. Okay. I am certain that I've cried both times. I watched, um, Little Fall of Rain in the live productions because that's the number that Eponine sings as she's like dying in Marius's arms. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm pretty sure I cried at both times, but I wasn't able to cry this time. Um, and God, that's like, I feel for some reason, I feel like that's the saddest part. Also because she literally did not have to point the barrel of the gun at herself when she saves Marius. Like they show mm -hmm. her literally pull the pull the barrel of the gun away from Marius's head and into her own chest. And that is what she dies from. I remember that scene happening like quickly. So I mm -hmm. didn't really think about her other options. And like, mm -hmm. it was like a split second thing. It's not yeah. like no, she had you're time right. to aim and stuff, but it is a um, little nitpicky. You, but you would still think like, yeah, gun away from people, including me, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think those are all of my major concerns. Um, slightly unrelated. I do want to say that I, whenever I watch a musical, there's usually a female character and a male character that I project slash like wish I could play. Um, mm -hmm. and obviously it's Ebony in this, like clearly Ebony, but like mm -hmm. the role I really want to play in this is Angel Ross. Mm -hmm. I just I see that I love you. that character thank you thank you I see that for you more than Eponine yeah um but maybe just because Eponine's part is like she's in love with Marius and that's it yeah <laughs> that's, her, that's her deal that's yeah. her storyline for the most part that's true like I love on my own it's a beautiful number and I think I could sing it um even though it is so oversung um at least among the circles that I traveled in when I was younger. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if anyone wants to do like, um, a genderqueer casting of Angel Ross or even just the whole show in general, I am interested in Angel Ross. I will cast my name forward in nomination for that. Somebody please hire me, Belle. Somebody please hire me to play Angel Ross. I want to see an adaptation of this story that makes me have feelings about the characters. <laughs> Which is Because like, I think I could. Like, yeah. it just seems like, well, yeah, like, why didn't I? Yeah, and also there is literally no reason for all of these characters to be cishet. 
because any of them could be queer, especially because there's so little romance and like, yeah, there's, there's so like little like of... procreative sex. Like the Tanadiers have Eponine, but those two are also very chaotic. Um, yeah. And like, anyway, that is probably a side note. Um, anyway. Anyway. But I agree. Like, we should do. I want to see the gender queer adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do a gender but queer. But I want to see the. Yeah, I want to see the gender queer adaptation of, like, anything. Yeah, that is also me. Pretty much every movie that I watch, I'm like, mm, but what if everybody was a woman? And, like, I've said it so often that my partner is just, like, desensitized. <laughs> so, so desensitized. I'm always like, mm, but what if, but what if Jason Bourne was a woman? But what if James Bond was a woman? But what if Iron Man was a woman? <laughs> Just anyone. Just, just anyone. Pick. I just like just make them all women or or queer people. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Not quite the tangent. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, we, are you ready to rate the movie? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm ready. Um, do you think you want to give the rating scale? Yes, I will give the rating scale. One teardrop is bone dry. Two teardrops is I could see myself crying, but I didn't. Three teardrops is it got me a little. Four teardrops is I cried. And five teardrops is full sobbing. Maybell, what rating do you give this film? I think I'm going to give this a 2.75. Um, Tell us why. It's kind of a blended rating, I'm going to say, because I don't think that I will actually cry at this movie. Um, it didn't cry this time, and I don't think I would cry. So that would generally put me in the two range. It did mm -hmm. get me a little bit, so it bumps it up a little, but I also think I would only actually cry at the stage version of this, and I think I would cry a lot when watching it live. So okay. so I'm bumping myself out of the, like, two, closer to the three, so I'm going to give it, like, a 2.75. How about you? Okay. I'm giving it a one or maybe a zero. <laughs> I didn't cry. Yeah. I'm not going to cry. Yeah. It it didn't pull me in emotionally. That's I was fair. just kind of like watching it to do that for this podcast and waiting mm -hmm. for it to be over. Mm -hmm. And I would love to talk to somebody who was in charge of this movie and tell them how little I enjoyed it <laughs> and see if they could maybe convince me otherwise. No, it's okay. It's okay. Movie musicals are like famously not like the best way to absorb the content, but they're the most accessible way. So. It just, like, it's a huge, it was a huge thing. Mm -hmm. It won awards and yeah. it cost money, presumably, a lot of it, I think. Yeah. And for what? Like, it was a... To make everyone just, miserable. To make, yeah. And not even in a, in a way that, like, like, everyone has such a sad, horrible, sad, terrible, mm -hmm. dismal storyline, and I didn't care about them. Mm-hmm. And my own, my misery was not in connecting with the character's misery. It wasn't watching this movie. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's okay. Like, I mean, I feel you. I didn't cry either. Although I think I was slightly more connected to the characters. Yeah. But I, I would love to talk to somebody who had decision-making power mm -hmm. and ask them some questions. Mm -hmm. So that wraps that up. Shall right. we take our second ad break? Sounds good. 
This episode of Tear Jerkers is brought to you by Helena Bonham Carter being perfectly cast in every role she plays. Yes, she's one of the people in this movie where I just felt like the perfect movie star casting for this role. Like, especially after seeing her in Sweeney Todd, like, she's basically adjacent to Mrs. Lovett in this. The hair is pretty much the same. The costumes, quite similar. Um, mannerisms are different. I mean, they are different characters, but oh, I love her. She's perfect. She's really great. Her characters in, I haven't seen every film she's ever done, but most mm -hmm. of her characters are like just quite similar to each other mm -hmm. and I don't care. I'm mm -hmm. never bored watching her yeah. do this like crazed lady. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what what is the thing? What is the unifying factor in all of her characters? Yeah, she's a little unhinged, a little, but she also mm -hmm. played the Queen of England in The King's Speech and she was oh, nothing absolutely nothing like any of her other characters. And it was phenomenal. She did a great job. Um, okay, I'll, I'll have to watch that. Yeah, I loved The King's Speech. When I was in high school, it was like my favorite movie. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, you're a big nerd. I know. It was like super <laughs> pretentious of me, but I did love the It's not like I was lying about how much I love the movie. Like, I did yeah. love the movie that much, and that's a little bit more sad than just being pretentious and pretending I liked the movie. I, she was also someone I had a crush on when I was younger. Oh, she's a babe. Oh, yeah. Absolute babe. Um, God. Yeah. We love feral women. I do. I do love a feral woman. <laughs> Let's get back to the show. All right, so we're going to be closing out the show today with our favorite little segment that we like to pair with any of our musical movie episodes. We're doing tissue tunes. So, Kimia, do you have any specific tissue tunes you'd like to share with us? I do, and I took inspiration from yours. Um, you have a Phoebe Bridgers song. I do. And Phoebe Bridgers, Julian Baker, and Lucy Dacus formed a super group <gasps> together called Boy Genius. And if you're getting into Phoebe Bridgers, you have to get into Boy Genius. Um, my personal favorite of the three individuals is Lucy Dacus, and she has a song called The Shell. Mm -hmm. um, the first stanza-ish is like, what is the word? Eviscerating. Mm. Um, but then one of the last lines, I'm going to look it up. I mean, I know it by heart, but I need to read it, not sing it. I mean, you can um, sing it. Because I have a... No, I care about you and I don't want to put you through that. Okay, thanks. Um, this isn't a sentiment that I've personally really connected with. Like I know lots of people who would connect with this, but holy cow, is it powerful? Um, she says, if the body and the life were two things that we could divide, I'd deliver up my shell to be filled with somebody else. Ooh. Right? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Lucy. That's good. That's good stuff. Oof. Yeah, but I highly recommend this song and pay pay special attention to the first stanza because it's real good. I will. I will. Um, Tell me about your tissue tune. So my tissue tune is Phoebe Bridger's song Funeral, which I started listening to because um, I heard Phoebe Bridger's is like a person I needed to check out for a while, but I never got around to it until recently. Because she had an interview on a podcast I was listening to and they showed a snippet and they included a snippet of the song in it. So I was like, okay, 
Um, just that like 10 second clip was like way too much for me to handle on my drive to work. So mm -hmm. I obviously have to wake up early the next day and then lay on the couch, stare at the ceiling and cry to the entirety of the song, which is what I did twice or three times. I can't remember how many times I played it, <laughs> but, um, but yes, I pulled, I pulled it up on my Spotify and I listened to it and the lyrics were a lot and very beautiful. And now I'm starting to get into Phoebe Bridgers and I know I'm a little bit late, but I'm usually a couple years late to pretty much anything when it comes to mainstream music. Um, <laughs> I just don't listen to that much. So You're welcome at any time. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really good. I'm, I'm going to have to listen to it. Is there like a particular line? There, there is. There's, um, there's the line. I mean, the whole song is like sad. It's about going home to her hometown and singing at a funeral of a boy who was in school with her. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a part, like, I think in the second verse or something, where she's singing about how she got blacked out drunk and then woke up in her bed, and she was talking about how sad and miserable she was and how she wished she could be anybody else. And then she suddenly remembered that someone's kid is dead. And just... Ooh. It's good. It's really Oof. good. Yeah. That would make me cry. I'll listen to that on my commute tomorrow and I'll probably cry. On your way to work or on your way from work? It, it'll go either way for me. Um, but lately I've been listening to like two albums on repeat. This has got been going on for like a week and this is kind of one of the ways that I listen to music is just pick an album and listen to it. That's what I, like I do. Like it's stuck in my head. Yeah, I yeah. have to just listen to it until I'm Yeah. I pretty ready much to move will, on. I will like listen to an album for a straight month and like devour it and then I won't listen to music for 6 months. Oh, wow. Hmm. Well, I also like live off of podcasts. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. I like subsist so. off of podcasts. <laughs> Okay, so I'll I'll listen to Phoebe Bridger's funeral um, sometime this week because I, I would like to cry. Yes. I might put it on so I could get a few more tears out. I'm feeling kind of pent up. It's been okay. a, it's been a weird week. Um uh -huh. and I would like to cry and the Lemas didn't do it for me, so I yeah. gotta figure something else out. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean there you have it. Will you cry to Lemas? Guess not. Probably not. Yeah, guess not. Sorry, folks. You can't folks. promise that you will. But it's okay. It's okay. I mean, if you cry to Les Mis, more power to you, especially the movie. Let us Yeah, know. I want to hear about it. Yeah. That kind of brings us to the end of the show. Yeah. Did you like the movie version of Les Mis? Do you think that the majesty of the French Revolution can't be translated off the stage? Does Les Mis make you cry? If it does, I really want to talk to you because... I just don't get it. Yes, I'm very interested. We welcome you and we want to talk to you. Yes. Please help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us how you feel on Twitter at tearjerkers underscore pod and join the conversation with other listeners on Facebook at tearjerkers community. And if you have any suggestions of movies that we should watch, any nominations of films or even like a really good cat video, you can send a link 
or a voice memo of your nomination to our email address at tearjerkers.podcast at gmail.com. And if you have the time, please give us a five-star review on whatever you use to listen to us so we can reach more ears. And don't forget to subscribe or favorite so you can be sure to catch the next episode. And as always, tell your friends about this podcast. Tell someone you know who loves or hates Les Mis about this podcast. Or if you know anybody who thought that they were Eponine because their high school crush ended up with somebody else, a.k.a. me, tell them to listen to us. (laughs) (laughs) And if any of you want to start a revolution, please give me a call. Tear Jerkers is produced by me, Maybell Shimizu, and co-hosted by me and Kimia Ranjbaran. And we'd like to thank Beast Coast Arts for our logo. If you're interested in any artwork, you can contact him at beastcoastarts at gmail.com. The wizard behind our intro music and the editing hero of this podcast is Gage Pryor. You can find more of his tunes at soundcloud.com slash please. Thanks for listening. I am never locking my marble up for that one again. <laughs> Poor little marble. Oh, your little marble brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's so smooth and round.